Lauren Taylor for Renovate, a ministry at Christ Chapel for young adults in Fort Worth, Texas. Whether you're a student, young professional, or young couple, this is a place for you. Today's podcast jumps back into our series on the minor prophets of the Old Testament. I hope you enjoy it. Praise God. How are you guys doing tonight? Good. Uh, love y'all. This is uh, exciting. So uh, we are stepping back into our series on the Minor Prophets. And so uh, if you've kind of been tracking with us this semester, we're doing two different series kind of at once. Uh, we will switch back and forth between the Minor Prophets, uh, which are the last 12 books in the Old Testament. And then also we've been doing the series the last couple of weeks called The Gospel's Antidote for and so Newberry preached a couple weeks ago on the gospel's antidote for unworthiness. Uh, McCarthy preached last week on the gospel's antidote for people-pleasing. And, so, uh, and so we'll kind of switch back and forth. And so uh, we are back in the Minor Prophets. And whenever you see me up here on stage, you'll know, ah, Minor Prophets, Ben's going to yell at us and tell us how sinful we are and speak judgment over us. And when everyone else is up here, you're like, ah, the gospel, that's awesome. So we should balance each other out well. Um, so tonight is Jonah, okay? Uh, so if you got your Bibles, um, grab your Bibles, flip to Jonah. Uh, it is page 774 in my Bible, if that helps. Um, <clears throat> there's Bibles underneath the seats if you want to use that. Jonah is probably one of those stories that has probably got to be one of the top three most popular. It's got to be up there with David and Goliath, right? And maybe like Moses in the Red Sea, uh, maybe Noah's Ark, and then Jonah gets swallowed up by this big fish. Uh, we know, we, a lot of us have heard the story of Jonah, this guy who gets swallowed up. A lot of us maybe have um, a perception of this book. Uh, it's a crazy book. Uh, it is four chapters long, and it's crazy. Uh, we're going to unpack it tonight, and what's going to happen is I'm going to walk us through the book of Jonah, four chapters, and then I'm going to make some observations. I'm going to make about three observations and what that says about who God is revealing himself to be in this book, and then I'm going to challenge you with two questions, and then we are going to worship Jesus. We're not going to sing songs. We are with those two questions, going to take those before God and say, Lord, you do this work in my life. And we're going to ask those before God, and we're going to come up here and not sing songs, but we're going to worship and respond. So that's what tonight looks like. Uh, I, I found a video that I want to play for you guys. It's three minutes long, and I feel like this video really articulates what many of us, our experience of Jonah was like when we were younger. And uh, so this is a video that I found on YouTube, which is not licensed, so we will be sued. Uh, but I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. And uh, whenever Jeffrey is ready, we're going to play this video uh, on Jonah. So enjoy. It's awful. First of all, if you're new, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for our guests. Uh, please don't, please give us another shot next week. Uh, we won't have a video. Uh, yeah, so I want to show that because uh, that, I think, oftentimes is what we think of when we think of Jonah. That, but maybe a little less LSD-esque, right? Like some version of that, but maybe without like talking worms. And I apologize if that makes anybody stumble in here and brings up past memories. But that, that, is, that is what we think of, right? This is this story, this cartoon story of this really nice, well-shaven guy who kind of makes a bad decision, runs from God, you know, big misunderstanding, and then all these funny circumstances happen. Um, that video is awful on so many levels. Uh, the other thing, too, is there is a massive misunderstanding, uh, I would say, so often when we think of Jonah as actually how it plays out in the four chapters of Jonah. And so what I want to do is I want to contrast that trip with 
what God actually says happens uh, in his word in Jonah. So get your Bibles open. There's a few things it's like, okay, yeah, that happened. And then a few things are like, it didn't go down that way at all. I want to show you those. So chapter one, uh, chapter one starts out this way. Uh, in verse two, God says to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against a call out against it for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose and f- to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So we see that happen, right? So in chapter one, we see Jonah get told by the word, by God to say, hey, arise and go to Nineveh because their sin has risen up before me. And, and I'm going to tell you to go and call them towards repentance. And he flees, right? We see it. That's a typical thing that we see. And he runs from God and, he's, and he heads the furthest direction uh, he can from Nineveh, the place he's called to. Um, he gets on this boat, right? With cartoon sailors, sails across uh, the ocean, the storms come, it gets crazy. And the sailors panic, right? There's just total fear and madness in these sailors. But look at, look at what actually happens in verse eight. Then they said to him, they, so the sailors cast lots and they say, why is this happening? Right? Why is God punishing us? Why are these storms happening? And then verse eight, then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. They've identified it as, okay, something Jonah did. And they say, what is your occupation? And where do you come from? And what is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. So then he admits it, right? Jonah admits, hey, I'm, I am the God. I believe in the Hebrew God, the one true God, the God of the sea and the land, which just is a boneheaded idea to then be fleeing on a boat from the God of the sea and the land. And, and they panic and they say, man, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We've got a guy on our boat. The waves are crying. We are going to sink. We are going to die. What do we do with this guy? Well, you have brought God's wrath on us. Jonah says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come uh, upon you. So here's sometimes what we think of. We think, oh man, what a selfless guy. You know what, guys, this is on me. This is me. I blew it. Throw me in there and, and it'll calm down the sea. But really what we see in chapter one is an incredibly selfish guy in Jonah. A guy who hears the call to go, flees the call to go, And then I believe what's happening here is not a selfless act for Jonah to say, okay, throw me in, right? The cartoon Jonah that says the right thing to do is throw me in and I'll sacrifice myself and you guys will be fine. What we see is a guy who would rather die than obey God. And we're going to see that explicitly in chapter four. That's where I'm, I'm getting that. So we'll get to that here in a second. But a guy who says, I would rather die too cowardly to commit suicide. So my blood will be on your hands, sailors. You go ahead and kill me because I would rather be killed than obey God's command in verse two. Unbelievably selfish prophet in Jonah that he would rather have the blood, his own blood on these sailors' hands and end his life and have his life ended. He doesn't pray for a fish to save him. He doesn't pray for God to save him. He says, throw me into the sea. And they even debate it. They say, no way. And it says, then they start rowing and and rowing and rowing. And they think, we don't want to kill this guy. We don't want this God even more mad at us. Until eventually, finally, they say, okay, Lord, please have mercy on us. Please forgive us for this. But we're going to do it because we think it's the right thing to do. And they hurl him into the sea. And then look what happens at the end of chapter one. Then the men 
The sea quieted down. And then verse 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. That's awesome. These sailors who, when the storms first hit, are, are asking every God they can think of for safety and salvation, by the end of this chapter, are making a vow to the one true God as Jonah is floating in this ocean. Then he gets swallowed up by a fish. Then God saves him. Then in the belly of the fish, chapter two is where we are. Then he starts praying. Jonah doesn't say, okay, God, save me. Give me another chance. Jonah says, man, I would rather die than follow God than do what he's commanded me here. He gets thrown overboard. Then he gets swallowed up by a fish. Then he starts praying when he's in the belly of the fish. And so chapter two in Jonah is this prayer of God. It's this prayer of lamenting. It's this prayer of truth. It's this prayer of identifying uh, the commands that God had put on his heart. And then we get to chapter three. He gets vomited out of the mouth, right? It's not like the, the, I love the cartoon where the fish just kind of goes up to the shore and opens his mouth and he just strolls out all fine and ready to go. No, he gets thrown up out of the fish's mouth, rolls up on shore. Then chapter three happens. Look at the very beginning of chapter three. Then the Lord, in verse one, then the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So finally now, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. So it took three days just to walk through the city. <clears throat> Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey and called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's, it, that's his sermon. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth and from the greatest of them to the least of them. Here's what happens. He gets swallowed up by fish, thrown up, gets up. God says, hey, my command is still for you to go. Finally, begrudgingly goes to Nineveh, the city he doesn't want to go to. A day in says, repent, right? He says these eight words, right? It's five Hebrew words. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Hey, in 40 days, you're all going to get wiped out by God. I have heard some lazy sermons, man, right? Like I've heard some lazy preaching. I am probably guilty of some lazy preaching in there. I roll out of bed. I have a sermon for this morning. Uh, Google something from Joel um, Osteen. Uh, so, you know, I, I have had, right? And I've heard them, right? You've just heard some lazy sermons. This, folks, is the laziest sermon ever, Right? This is not Jonah going in saying, all right, God, you showed me my lesson. You swallowed me by the fish. You vomited me out. I'm going to go preach it. He goes in a day in. I picture him just folding his arms. I'd rather be dead than do this, but okay. And then 40 days, you guys are going to get wiped out by God. Right? It is a lazy story. I, it doesn't, he doesn't give explanation of how, what repentance looks like. He's not, he just preaches a lazy sermon. And then what happens? The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth. Right, the king of Nineveh, later on in chapter 3, he gets it. And he sits in ash and has a national decree that says, nobody eat. We are all fasting because we believe God. We believe in him. We believe we have offended the God and we are all going to repent as a nation. That is Epic from this lazy sermon 
from a foolish, selfish prophet that somehow God is still using. And then look at verse 10, guys. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God saw what they did, how they had turned from their evil ways, and then God relented from the disaster that he was going to bring about. Wow. Yes. That is where this book should end at the end of chapter three, but it doesn't. It goes on to chapter four, which is the worst. If we think we've thrown Jonah under the bus, look at how this, and and most cartoons are going to end there, right? Our YouTube cartoon didn't even make it through chapter two, right? This one at least gets through the end of, yeah, God's people relented and, or God relented and people repented and they returned to God. Look what happens. Look what happens when Jonah sees God's grace on people. Read the beginning of chapter four with me. (laughs) But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He is quoting God's word from Exodus to God in disappointment of God's gracious character. That's what's happening from the prophet Jonah. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. This guy's the worst. He's the worst. I love the book of Jonah, but Jonah is the worst. He is used by God in incredible ways. He runs, he gets dragged back, he finally goes and does what God wants. Then God saves these people and he's so upset. God, I I knew you were gonna do this, God. He's pouting. I knew you were gonna do this. I knew you were gonna save these people. This is the kind of God you are. Always showing people grace and mercy. Just kill me now. That's what's happening. That's what's happening in the book of Jonah. Kill me now. He says it again in verse 8. It is better for me to die than to live. He's racist, guys. Jonah is a racist. He dislikes the people group of Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. He dislikes the Assyrians that much. The Assyrian people, this nation... He despises to the point where he would rather flee and disobey God. Fine, I'll do what you want me to do. And then say, just, if you're going to save these people, I don't want to live in a world where you're saving these people. To the core, selfish, racist guy. Foolish. Then he goes, he literally sits on a hill overlooking the city. I think most most. Bible scholars would say because he wants to see, maybe God's going to change his mind. Maybe he is going to wipe them out. I'm going to sit here for at least 40 days. It seems like God's relenting, but maybe he'll still wipe them out and this will be a great show for me, right? And so he sits on a hill overlooking Nineveh pouting and God brings this this tree, this plant to cover him from the heat. And he's super stoked about that. And he's like, yes, man, that's great. In chapter four, oh man, good. There's some shade though I'm not sitting in the heat. Then the next day, God sends a worm, probably like those acid trip worms in that cartoon, sends a worm to eat the tree. 
So then a worm eats the tree and all of a sudden the tree is no longer covering and the plant withers and dies because of this worm. And now all of a sudden he's back in the sun. And that's when he says, man, what in the world? It is better for me. It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, and this is why God does it. This is why in chapter, the end of chapter four, he gives him this picture of like, what's going on with the tree and the plant? And then he kills the plant. What's he trying to do? Here's what he's trying to show Jonah by bringing this plant to life and then taking it. God says, do you, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Like you're really upset that the plant just got wiped out, that the plant died. You do good to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. That's Jonah's response to God. <sighs> then in verse 10, and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you, do, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night, you had it for one day, and should, this is God's word right here. God says, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people? God says, man, you pity a plant that was here for a day and then went away. You didn't create the plant. You didn't have anything to do with the plant. Should I, the creator of the universe, not pity this city full of human beings created in my image? sinful people who have spent their life disobeying me, who now are repenting? Should I not pity them? And that's where the book ends. We don't know Jonah's response. We don't know if it clicks. We don't know if he finally gets it. Uh, I hope so. I'm going to say he does. I'm going to have a great conversation with him in heaven. He hates these cartoons more than we do. I guarantee you that. <clears throat> but that's the book of Jonah, right? That's the book of Jonah, it's this story of a prophet, and it's unique for most of the other prophets. Right? Most of the other prophets that we're going through, these minor prophets, we're hearing their commands to the people of Israel or to the people of Nineveh or Assyria or wherever it is, and, and, and it's laid out, these commands and these condemnations from God and judgments and what it looks like to repent. But this one is this story of a really fallen, foolish prophet, and yet how God uses him and is steadfast throughout. Here's what I want to do. I want to make uh, just three observations in this story, just kind of pull three things to the surface and what that says about God. I'm going to ask you guys two questions. <clears throat> Here's the first observation. Um, the other people. So in chapter one and in chapter three, in chapter one, he's on the boat, right? He's on the boat with these people who just, they are, they are worshiping pagan gods. When the storms come, these people are going to all their gods, little G gods, and trying to figure out, oh my goodness, who do we need to appease? Who do we need to worship? Who do we need to sacrifice to, to save us, right? They are far from God. Jonah doesn't get it. Jonah is selfish. And yet, even through his act of selfishness and hypocrisy, these sailors in chapter one, they repent and they make vows to the Hebrew God, to the one true God, and they pledge their life to this God. And he uses that experience. Then in chapter three, same thing, but with an entire city and people, the Assyrian people. He goes to Nineveh, the heartbeat of the Assyrian people, and he doesn't get it, and he's selfish, and he's lazy. And yet these people have change in their life, and they repent. And even through this, this prophet who's just not feeling it, God moves in their heart and uses that prophet and uses those words and uses that begrudging obedience to bring about repentance. Here's, here's what we see. Here's a, here's a truth that we see from these observations in Jonah. God can use fools. 
God can use the lazy. God can use the selfish. God can use the stubborn for his glory. God can use broken people for his glory because that is how powerful our God is. God can use inadequate people who don't perfectly represent him. He can still use those people for his glory because God is in the heavens and he does what he pleases. And he is going to be glorified and he is powerful. Man, my life in ministry is a story of foolish thing after foolish thing, and yet God still chooses to use me. I told a story about a year ago. Uh, it's probably one of maybe the top 10 most embarrassing moments of, for me. I was at a youth camp. Some of you guys remember this, and I used to run program at youth camps, and we did like this skit thing, and I got in a fight with a buddy of mine that I worked with, and we went out back behind the auditorium, and it was like during the sermon was going on, and we were supposed to go back up after the sermon and like do this like gospel presentation thing, but like we were like buttonheads, man. Just, I don't even remember what it was about, just selfish pettiness, and we go out there, and we just start yelling at each other, and yelling quickly turns into cussing. And so I am on staff, right, like the guy who's like hired to come in and like share the gospel. And me and my other buddy who are on stage sharing the gospel each night at this thing are just cussing at each other. Just immature foolishness, undisciplined, just cussing at each other. And it was, it was just one of those really immature, man, here's my flesh, this is the kind of pastor, I'm just this guy who was just on stage talking, and now here I am just, my language is awful, his language is awful, and we're thinking everybody's inside. We go around the corner, there is a youth group of guys meeting with their youth pastor right around the corner. It was one of those moments that was like, oh man. And there shouldn't have had to be this group of 13-year-old boys with their youth pastor walking through some Bible verse to convict us, right? But in God's grace, we saw that because it was convicting and eye-opening and immediately our stomachs drop and immediately we just realize, man, who are we? And then we get up on stage 15 minutes later and share the gospel to a room full of kids. I just remember though, my life in ministry is, is speckled with all these incidences where I think, man, God, I'm inadequate for this. God, I still have sin in my life. I still have flesh that takes the wheel at times. Man, I don't want it. I want to kill it. I'm not proud of it. It's not an indulgence of it. It's not a glorification of it. It's not okay. It's not worthy of you. And yet God still uses broken people and it's not an endorsement and it's not licensed to be able to continue to, but it's ownership of who we are. And yet God uses fools and stubborn people and people who are inadequate. God still says, I am going to get glory because, I'm, because I deserve glory. Because that's the point of this. Jonah is a great example of God using imperfect people for his glory. Second observation. There's a reason Jonah hated the Assyrians. It's not okay, right? There's, there's, no, there's no world in which it would be okay for kind of this racist hatred to exist, right? If, if you believe, if you follow Jesus and you have a racist heart, you are not following Jesus. You are living in disobedience. You are living in sin. If you are racist in any way and you say you are a believer of Jesus, then you are living a hip, hip, hypocritical following of Jesus. And he would call you to repent of that. There's no way that that's okay. But he had reason. And his reason for this immature sinful hatred was because the Assyrians were awful people. They were awful people. They murdered Jews every chance they could. They murdered his people. He probably had loved ones who had been killed or persecuted by the Assyrians. The Assyrians' goal would have been to wipe out these people. And they were, they were masters at torture, 
They were masters at intimidation and torture techniques to intimidate countries they were trying to invade and conquer. They didn't just, they didn't just not believe in the one true God. They opposed the one true God. They were anti that God. They sacrificed to other gods. They, they lived their life in a way defiant to the one true God who Jonah had built his life and his foundation on as a prophet of God. And so he has this perspective that he's seeing where this hatred has taken place, where they are awful people. Assyrians would have been the worst of the worst in this time. The things they did, the way they lived their life would have been the most depraved lifestyle of the times. They repented. God relented and showed them grace and forgiveness. The grace of God. Here's the truth that we see from this observation. Here's what floats to the top. You ready for this? Listen. The grace of God for those who are in Christ knows no bounds. The Assyrians were awful people. They repented. They truly repented. They were broken over their sin and repented. And God relented in wiping them out, which is what they would have deserved, and showed them grace and mercy and forgiveness. For those who are in Christ, for those who are walking in true repentance, there is no bounds to how powerful God's grace is. There is no amount of sin and depravity that can outweigh the grace and power of God's mercy. That is here. There is no end to it. God's grace and his mercy will triumph over anyone who repents and claims the name of Jesus. If the Assyrians, an entire nation of people, are spared by God for another 150 years, they live in peace with God before they begin to rebel again. There is no end, there is no bounds to God's grace for those who, who repent. And here's the third observation. You ready for this? Third observation is this. There's a call at the beginning of chapter 1, if you remember, and there's a call from God at the beginning of chapter 3, if you remember. God, verse 2, says, Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, tell them, tell them to repent, tell them what I'm telling you to tell them, right? He doesn't. He runs away. We've got a whole chapter and a half of him fleeing, getting swallowed up. And then chapter 3, it says, for the second time, God calls him. For the second time, God goes back to him and says, hey, that thing I did in chapter 1 hasn't expired. Here's the, here's the timeless truth from this. God's commands don't expire. I think so often we think, okay, well, I'm called to do something, but then we blow it, right? Like Jonah clearly blew it. Like he got the command. He clearly said no. In my mind, disqualified himself, said, nope, I'm out of here. I'm not going to do it. I would rather die than be obedient to you. And God didn't just say, well, crumbs, okay, Jonah's out, I'll go get Steve, right? He didn't do that. God said, no, 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 drag you back. My call and my command for you to be obedient doesn't expire because of your disobedience. The fact that you blew it, the fact that God called you to something, called you to obedience, and the fact that you didn't do it doesn't invalidate that God still says, yep, it's still here. It doesn't expire. God's command in our life doesn't expire out of our disobedience or our slothfulness or our laziness or our foolishness or our ignorance. God's commands don't expire. Here's what I want you 
to think about tonight and before as we go back into worship here in a few minutes. Two questions, right? I want to put two questions before you from, from if this is how God operates and we see these truths from Jonah, uh, I want you to think in, in these two terms. Uh, here's the first question I want to ask you. <clears throat> is God's grace big enough? Is God's grace in your life big enough for you, for your sin? <clears throat> do, you, do you look at your life and look at the choices you've made or the circumstances or the things that have happened in your life and get to a place where you say, man, okay, I, sure, I know God's grace is big enough, but do you believe God's grace is big enough for your sin? Do you believe, let me ask that in a different way, same question. Do you believe God's grace is big enough for the lack of value that you feel? I mean, so often we think of our sin as these uh, circumstances, these things that we've done, these things that, man, we can't shake, man, I can't seem to get them clean, and I still, I'm still carrying around this baggage from this sin that I've walked into my life. But I think so often one of the things that happens is it becomes, it becomes how we identify ourselves. Okay, well, we know we're loved by God, but we're not that valuable. Like, do we really, do you really believe that God's grace is big enough to say your value is set by me, the God of the universe? And I say you're a new creation. And I say you are a co-heir with Jesus Christ. And we say, and we say, no, no. Well, I mean, okay, I'm, I'm accepted and I'm loved, but I'm gonna be a slave in your court. I'm not gonna be a son or a daughter sitting at the table with you because I know myself. And we walk around with this, with this unworthiness, right, that Robert talked about a couple of weeks ago. We walk around with this unworthiness because are we really believing God's grace is big enough? The Assyrians, it didn't get worse than them, and God saved an entire nation. Do you believe that in your life, that God's grace is big enough for you? I want you to not just answer that question in your head. I want you tonight when we go back into worship, to ask that question to the Lord, to say, Lord, help my belief in that. Lord, show me the areas where I don't believe. Show me the areas, not just where I, I haven't quite applied your forgiveness to things I've done, but applied your forgiveness and your acceptance to who I am. I'm your son. I'm your daughter. I'm loved by you. I'm cherished by you. I'm called righteous which I do not deserve to be called, but because of Jesus Christ, because we have a Savior who 2,000 years ago hung on a cross and bled, the blood of Christ has saved us. For those who have put their faith in that, Jesus has said, that is my sacrifice. The blood of Jesus Christ, the fact that our God hung on a cross, that blood of Jesus Christ is now enough for me. It is now enough for me to not just expunge my record, but to call me worthy to approach God as a worthy son and a worthy daughter because of his righteousness, not my own. Do you believe that? My second question is, what are you doing with that? If you believe that, if you say, yeah, I do believe that. I mean, every, everyone should be able to say, I believe that, but help me believe it more and we wrestle with that. But if you say, yeah, I believe that, what are you doing with that? You have been given a command like Jonah to go and share, to make disciples. This ministry is built on this verse, couple of verses in 2 Corinthians 5 that talks about we have been reconciled by the God of the universe 
Our sins are no longer held against us. We've been reconciled. And then in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, it says, and now we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. So if we believe that, and if we believe we're saved, and if we believe the blood of Jesus really does cover us, then what are we doing with that? Are we now going to tell everybody else who this God is and how he loves and what repentance looks like and how much better it is to obey him and joyfully submit our lives to him rather than chasing all of these things that just lead to death, every kind of death, every kind of emptiness. That's where everything else is going to lead in our lives. Are you sharing it? Or do you hear that and say, okay, I'm just going to apply this to me and my own personal relationship with Jesus, and I'm going to wander off to Tarshish, and I'm not going to share it the way God's called me to share it. Do you believe his grace is big enough? And are you sharing it? What are you doing with that grace? How are you letting the world around you? How are you telling people? How are you living it out in front of people? What does that life look like? And how can I do that more? How can I do that more? Um, That should be enough, right? That should be enough for me. Okay, I know I'm supposed to, and this is good, and this is convicting, and I know that, but how do I really do that? And here's how I want to end. I think the how behind my evangelism, it shouldn't just be based on my duty and my obligation. That should be enough, right? I'm called by a God who just saved me, who just reconciled me. Go and share this reconciliation. with That should be enough. But honestly, I'm weak, right? I think our evangelism shouldn't just be based on duty and obligation. It should be based on worship. Our evangelism shouldn't be based solely on our duty and our obligation to go and share with others. It should be based on our worship. And so as you ask that question to yourself, hopefully tonight, and say, man, am I really doing that? Coworkers, classmates, family, friends, neighbors, Uber drivers. Am I sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with people that's changed me? It's not just out of duty and obligation that I would want to push you to do that. It'd be out of worship. Because when you see God, because when you lean into him, you say, man, his glory is beautiful. Because that's what, that's what your worship says. Because you look at his glory and you say, this God is beautiful. God, give me a heart of worship that that would compel my obedience and my evangelism and my sharing what he's done in my life. Because God, your glory is beautiful. Because I am yours. Right? Do we say his glory is beautiful? He is good. Or do we say, well, I care more about myself. I care more about my glory and and not being embarrassed, not putting myself in awkward conversations. Do we say my life is his? It's been purchased. I've been reconciled. Or do we say, well, my life is still kind of going to be my own. I appreciate the reconciliation, God, but I'm going to keep my life my own and I'm going to manage my own life my way. Or do we say, no, my life is his. Is our worship in line with who he is? And I think the amazing thing is that when we say, ah, man, it comes up short, we get to say, praise God that we have a God who meets us in our honesty. And so my hope and my prayer tonight is that you would ask those two questions. Do I really believe his grace is big enough? And what am I doing with that grace? And go before your God and meet with him tonight. And as the band comes back up here to lead worship, that you would be asking those questions in your head and you would say, Lord, can I genuinely pray that your glory is beautiful? That when I sing of your holiness, Lord, help me to see it. Help me to experience your beauty because of the blood of Christ that's on my life. Let me pray over you. Father,
We love you. And we love you because you first loved us and you do it so perfectly. To the point of Jesus' death on a cross, our Savior, the blood of Jesus spilled. This precious blood of Jesus. God, would we not lose sight of that? Would we not minimize how powerful your grace is? And would we not be apathetic with the commands that you have given us to now go and share? But Lord, would it come from a genuine place? Not just a bunch of people who feel like they've got to share Jesus because it's the right thing to do, but would it come from a place of a room full of worshipers? So God, there's many of us in this room who know these things, but Lord, would you help us believe them in deeper and deeper ways? And even this evening as we go back into worship, would we not sing lyrics, but would we ask for our heart to believe these things? that your glory is beautiful? Would we not just sing that? Would we pray that? Would we see that tonight? We are yours, and we are grateful. In the name of Jesus, amen. Man, praise God that the minor prophets are still able to speak to us and convict us in so many different ways. The fact that these books that were written thousands of years ago can still be applicable and relatable is truly a gift that we hope has been blessing you as much as it has us. We know that there could be a whole range of different emotions or thoughts that get raised every week through what we are preaching on. So if you've had questions or want to go deeper into any of the topics from tonight or in weeks past, please reach out to us so we can grab a cup of coffee and connect with you. You can reach us at renovateftw.org or on social media at renovateftw. That's all for now, but we hope to see you again next week.